I was grabbing a donut really quick, and then all of a sudden I heard the music, and I'm like, oh, I'm in big trouble. How are you guys doing today? Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, and turn to the book of Haggai. And you're all like, where in the world is Haggai? Exactly. Oh, you're a good man. Thank you, Austin. I'll save the donut maybe for later. Um, turn to the book of Haggai. It's at the end of the Old Testament. It's a very, very small book. It's just a couple chapters, I think 38 verses, and it hides out between the two Z books, Zephaniah and Zechariah, about three books from the end of your Old Testament. Um, it's interesting, why Haggai? That's a good question. Um, usually, coming out of, um, usually coming out of Easter, pastors would be like, okay, I want to put our best foot forward. I want to go into a family series. I want to get back into the Gospels. And we're going to get there eventually. But I think Haggai is a really, really good place for us to land in this season. I actually think, in some ways, as I was preparing this message, I feel like I'm finishing a three-part series that started the last week of Ephesians. In Ephesians, I was in Revelation. If you remember, we were looking at a letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus. They'd lost their first love. He, he confronted them with a problem. You've lost your first love. Now, what are you going to do about it? And he calls them to remember, to repent, to return. He brings the people to the cro a crossroads and he says, what are you going to do? And then last week on Easter, also a crossroads. How are you going to respond to the message? You can either accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ or you can reject it. That's your choice. But as Cal preached here last week, the, the insane decision would be to accept it and not respond to it. And again, this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of the presence of the Lord and, and, and the passage, the word of the Lord is going to bring you to a crossroad. What are you going to do with the word that the Lord says? How are you going to respond to it? That's why we chose Haggai. And um, before I get there, can I just recap a couple things from last weekend? And, and I want to recap last weekend a little bit in the context of the last couple of years. Two, two years ago on Easter of 2020, um, they let me take attendance. One person was here. Churches were closed. The pandemic was just starting. All of the churches in the community were uh, not gathering. And um, it was sad. It was, it was heartbreaking to be here on an Easter morning with nobody here. Last Sunday, across um, our services, our attendance was just over 3,600. If you count in our plant churches, over 6,000 people were in this church in Christ Church in Fremont. We're praising the Lord for that. 126 people responded last weekend and were baptized. We've never seen anything like that in the history of our church. Um, and I walked away from the weekend as I was reflecting on that. One of the things that I noticed as I was standing in the tank at Spring Lake and I was hearing the same thing from Chris and others here, over and over we were hearing something that, that we don't hear like we did last week. There were many people that came forward to get baptized and when I asked them, hey, why are you here to be baptized? They were saying, I want to take a next step of obedience because I accepted the Lord today, right now. Over and over, we are hearing that testimony. We don't always hear that testimony, but people being saved last week. Well, what causes that to happen? It's the presence of the Lord. 
You can't script it. You can't program that. And then just one other thing, just to, so that you guys know. Um, last week we took our offering for Ukraine. We've been taking all the money that comes in this week, making sure that we're getting it properly to Ukraine. And the check will go out on Wednesday um, for Ukraine, $320,000 raised. Um, I told, uh, I told the group on Saturday night, my wife was in the Saturday night service. I said, is there anything I need to change in the message? She said, yeah, you need to change the Ukraine announcement. And I said, what do I have to change? She says, you, you got to thank the people. I said, I did thank the people. I went defense mode. I said, I was very clear that I'm always surprised by the generosity and humbled by the generosity of our people. I said, that sounds like thank you to me. And there was a pregnant pause. Not, not that my wife's pregnant. There was a long pause. It was a, <laughs> got it, okay. <laughs> Don't want, to get, don't want to start rumors here. There was a pause, and she said, do you know what really sounds like thank you? Thank you. So now that you know the dynamics of my household, I want to make sure that you people are thanked. The generosity was, was really a blessing, um, to even to us as your, as your pastor. I called Josiah Venture, the group that we're giving the money to, to help the churches in Ukraine and, and the refugees that have fleed from the churches that are in Ukraine. And, and normally I would let Jody Flickema do that. She's... Um, our, our, our chief accountant, and um, I stole it from her because I just wanted to call them and give them that number. That probably wasn't right, but man, it was fun. So this week, we're going to talk about the presence of the Lord. Have you guys found Haggai yet? If you haven't, you still got time. It's going to take me a while to get there, all right? Because I want to give you some background on the presence of the Lord. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis before the fall, Adam and Eve walked and enjoyed uninterrupted presence with God. That's an incredible thing. Sin will come. They will be cast out of the garden. And, and, and when they leave the garden, the, the issue isn't that they lost paradise. The, what made paradise paradise was the presence of the Lord. Sin interrupted that. And God will speak to the par, uh, patriarchs through the book of Genesis. It comes, it goes. But as it relates to God's presence residing with his people, we pick up that story in the book of Exodus. God miraculously moves through Moses. The people are freed from slavery. And then we read this in Exodus 13. It says, As they wandered through the wilderness, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God's presence was visible. It was manifested day and night in front of the people. Where God's presence went, they followed. Even when they were in the wilderness, even with the manifest presence of the Lord with them, the people fall into patterns of grumbling and complaining. They rebel against Moses and Aaron, their leaders, and God gets exhausted. He gets fed up with his people. And we read in Exodus 33, verse 4, God says to Moses, he says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. God had made promises all the way back to Abram and the patriarchs of Genesis that he would give this nation that he was assembling a land, a home, an inheritance. And here God says, go to it. I'll give it to you. I'll be faithful to my promises. But then he says this, he says, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. It says, when the people heard that disastrous word, or when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Hey, listen, 
when the presence of the Lord departs, it is a disaster. Be it from a church, be it from a community, be it from a country, be it from your family, or be it from your life. When the Lord says, I'm not with you anymore, that is a disaster. Moses pleads with the Lord, don't leave us, don't send us if you're not going to go. We read in Exodus 33, verse 15, Moses said to the Lord, if your presence will not go with us, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Listen, God's presence is worth fighting for. It's what Moses is clinging to. He says, if we lose your presence, nobody cares about the land. That's the thing that we desire. God relents, he goes with the people, and we read in Exodus 40 that the people, on God's instruction, build for him what I would call a traveling temple or a tabernacle. As they went through the wilderness and as they got into the land, this was a building, a structure that could be assembled, taken apart, moved with them. It was a tabernacle. And we read in Exodus 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the, ta- the, the tabernacle. Glory of the Lord present with his people. When the people get into the land, we get to about 957 B.C. When I say about, that sounded like an exact date, okay? We get exactly to 957 B.C. And David, who is king, and he has secured Israel's borders in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, he calls out to God and says, let me build you a temple, a permanent structure where your presence will reside with your people. And God tells him, no. You've been a man of war. You've been a man of bloodshed. I'm not going to allow you to build my temple, but here's what I'm going to allow you to do. You can gather all of the building materials for the temple, and your son can build it for you. So David dies, Solomon comes on the scene, he builds God now a temple, a permanent structure. And we read in 2 Chronicles 7, it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest couldn't enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. God's presence in the temple. He resides in the Holy of Holies. Now, some doctrine here because I don't want to create confusion. God is spirit. God is what theologians would call omnipresent. He is everywhere at every moment. Even in the dedication of the temple, as Solomon has seen the glory of the Lord fill the temple in his dedication, he said this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. His father David in Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. Wherever I go, your hand's there to lead me and to guide me. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 18, where where two or three or more of my disciples are gathered, I'm going to be there with them. In Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter, the, the New Testament, at the church, today's church. It says that we are a living temple, that God resides with us. Three weeks ago, speaking from Revelation 2, the text says that God walks among his churches. He dwells with his people. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are the temple 
or you are God's temple, then that God's spirit dwells in you. And then in Revelation 21, we get this wonderful promise. At the end of this age, the kingdom of this world is returned to the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and He reigns forever and ever. And, and there's going to come a day in the future, Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. What makes heaven heaven? The presence of the Lord. It's funny. Every few weeks, occasionally I'll get asked questions about what is heaven like. Um, will there be animals in heaven? For sure. Will there be pets in heaven? For sure. Will my dog Fluffy? Not so sure. Okay. Will there be golf in heaven? Obviously. Four weeks ago, a, a, a college student, one of our 20s, stopped me in the hallway. Urgent question. Hey, can I, Pastor, I know you're rushing to go preach, but can I, can I ask you a quick question? Will there be vegetables in heaven? I'm like, yes, and you'll like them. Like, you know, odd questions about heaven because people are concerned. Am I going to like it? Am I not? Hey, guess what makes heaven heaven? The presence of the Lord. God is residing with his people. And for the nation of Israel, the, the temple had even greater significance. Not only was God's presence there, that's where the people gathered to worship. Pre-Christ's death on the cross, annual sacrifices were made to cover the sins of the nation. The sacrifices took place at the temple. So that's where you would go to repent and atone for sin via sacrifice in the Old Testament. The, the temple in the Old Testament was the center of Israel's relationship with the Lord. But it's interesting. Solomon dies. There's civil war in Israel. The nation splits. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And for the next few hundred years, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to both the northern and southern kingdoms, begging them to repent, to quit following foreign gods, to quit worshiping the gods of foreign nations, to set their hearts back on him, and the people never listen. And in 722, the northern kingdom falls. It's taken over by Assyria. And, and the last prophet to the southern kingdom is a guy by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is prophesying about the incoming or the, the judgment of the Lord that's about to come because the people refuse to repent. And, and in Ezekiel 10.10, 10, we have this verse that says the presence of the Lord left the temple. He's gone. He leaves the nation. And shortly after that prophecy in 586 B.C., the nation of Babylon comes in, levels Jerusalem, and destroys the temple knocks it down, and the people are led into exile. They are slaves in Babylon. And then in 539 B.C., the nation of the Medes and Persians, a guy by the name of Cyrus, the king, defeats the Babylonians, and now he becomes the leader of the world, the new world power, and the nation of Israel are still exiled, first in Babylon, now under Cyrus, king of the Medes and Persians. Have you guys found Haggai yet? <laughs> I should probably get there. Obviously, I'm struggling. I'm not ready. We're going to go to Ezra first. You guys good with that? 
So in Ezra, to finish the story, in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus is king. He's just defeated Babylon. Here's what we read, Ezra 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing. So, so Cyrus is going to have something to say. Why does he have something to say? Because the Lord stirred his spirit. Why did the Lord stir his spirit? Because he's going to be faithful to the promises that he made 70 years earlier to the prophet Jeremiah. Like, listen, if you're ever doubting that you serve a sovereign God, that a God that is in control of all things, he's moving in the heart of a foreign king. Look what he says. Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, for he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And he goes, and he says in verse 4, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house that God has in Jerusalem. And he'll say in verse 5 that of the people that God stirred their hearts, they went back and rebuilt the temple. The only thing I want you to see in these verses, a foreign king sends them back to rebuild the temple, and not only does he give them permission to leave, he funds it. It says, get offerings from the, your neighbors. I'm not only going to send you back, I want to fund the construction. So in Ezra 2, there's a list of all the people that went back. And in Ezra 3, the work begins on the temple. They're faithful to what God's called them to do. They finish the foundations in chapter 3. And at the end of the chapter in Ezra 3, they dedicate the foundations of the temple. And we read this, it says, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And then construction stops. The foundation was laid in 538 B.C. And there's no more construction for 18 years. The construction site is empty. No work is done. The people move on to other things. The house of the Lord isn't completed for 18 years. The people don't gather at the temple. The presence of the Lord doesn't fill the temple. Sacrifices aren't made at the temple. It's abandoned. And God loves them too much to leave them there. So he sends a prophet by the name of Haggai to shake them, to wake them and call them back to the task that they hadn't completed over the last 18 years. You guys ready for Haggai? I found it. Here's verse 1, Haggai 1.1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of somebody, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, only thing I want you to see, there's a very specific date given in the text, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. By the way, we know exactly what day that was. April 29th, or I'm sorry, August 29th, 520 B.C. In Haggai, the Lord's going to speak on four different days, and it's only going to cover four months. 
He starts speaking in August. He finishes speaking in December. We know the exact day. It's August 29th of 520 B.C. And then he says in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. A couple things I want you to see. That word Lord of hosts, that phrase, in 38 verses in Haggai, the prophet uses it 14 times. It means that God has the ability to direct nature, that he motivates his people to action, that he establishes and disposes of foreign kings and kingdoms, and that he gives his divine word to his people. God is Lord of lords, King of kings, and Lord of hosts. The other thing that jumps out at me at verse 2, notice how it says, these people. He doesn't say, my people. Notice that? So, in our house... Uh, we had six kids, okay? So they, there were times that I would come home from work, I would be tired, and the kids would be driving me crazy. And I would look and I would say, hey, Kristen, um, these kids, they're driving me crazy. More often I would say, um, get control of your kids. And she would be like, well, they're your kids too. And I would be like, not right now. <laughs> These people, not our people, I'm just going to tell you there's an indication there in the text that there's some conflict, there's some strife, there's some things that need to be resolved and God's going to speak to them in a moment. So the question becomes, why 18 years? Why have the people failed to seek the Lord's presence? I'm going to give you some, some things that they did from the text, but at the end of the day, they lived 2,500 years ago, it makes no difference. I think God wants to speak to us this morning and maybe test our hearts, have us evaluate ourselves rather than people that lived 2,500 years ago. Why sometimes do we fail to seek the presence of the Lord? Are you guys keeping notes this morning? How am I doing so far? I haven't gotten anything, have I? Okay, we've made it to the notes. Good moment here. Here's the big idea. God desires our desires. God desires our desires. This passage isn't about money. This passage isn't about our time or our energy. God desires that he be our desire. In your notes, what keeps us from seeking the Lord's presence? Typically, if I'm teaching through a text like this, I want to make sure that all of my points come from the text that I'm going through. In this case, I'm going to grab one back from Ezra. The first point, why sometimes we don't seek the Lord's presence, it's adversity. Remember, the temple was dedicated, or the foundations to the temple were dedicated at the end of Ezra 3. Look at the first verse in Ezra 4. Let me read it for you. It says this, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, that's all you need to know for right now. Here's all I'm going to say. They went back and did the work that the Lord called them to do. They were building the temple and adversaries, adversity arose. Don't be surprised when you call, when you're called by God to do something and you begin to do it, that adversity enters the equation. Every foot of turf that is gained for the kingdom of God is a conflicted, it's a battle, it's a war. This is why 
at Spring Lake where I was baptizing last week, at the end of every service, I prayed, and guess what I prayed? Protection over the people that had been baptized that morning. Because here's what I know, for people that have just claimed Jesus as their Savior, for people for the first time who have professed publicly that Jesus is their Lord, guess what? Opposition, persecution, adversity is going to follow. We know this. In the life of our church, in seasons where God's moves, around an Easter or a baptism service, our entire staff knows that week before is going to be a nightmare. We're going to be dealing with adversity. It, it, it's always that way. When you're called to do the work of the Lord, don't be surprised by adversity. But one of the things that stopped them from seeking the presence of the Lord, they ran into opposition. They ran into adversity. Here's the second one. Priorities, verse 2 of Haggai. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Hey, hey, we're going to rebuild it. Which is, it's just not time. Not yet. I'm not ready. Maybe they procrastinated. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they were just indifferent to the task. I, I don't know their motives, but I think it's important that we check ours. Where might God be speaking to you about misplaced motives or priorities in your life? And, and I warn you, when you begin to evaluate these things in your own heart, it can be a little tricky. We're pretty good at fooling ourselves. Let me give you an example. So last week, Easter services, right before that, big Good Friday services. You get to the end of Easter, we're pretty exhausted. I'm exhausted, the staff is exhausted. Man, we had a ton of volunteers last week too. Thank you for everything that you guys did. I, I, I watched it, it was amazing to me. But it's a big weekend for the church. So the staff normally has, Monday has their day off. We gave them Tuesday off as well. And um, I was up at my house Monday and Tuesday. And um, I just want you to know something about your pastor. I didn't take Monday and Tuesday off. I was right back at it. At my desk, 6.30 in the morning, Monday morning, writing my sermon. Because that's the heart of your pastor. I love the Lord and I'm pursuing, and I wanted to get my sermon done. I worked on it all day Monday, all day Tuesday. It was done by Tuesday. Do you know why? Because that's your pastor. Or maybe I looked at a weather report. <laughs> Do you guys remember last Monday and Tuesday? Snow. Do you remember that? And, and, and maybe on Sunday night I read the weather report and I said on Monday and Tuesday it's supposed to be snowing, but on Thursday and Friday it's going to be 60. And if I had my choice, I'd rather golf on Thursday than Tuesday when it's snowing. So maybe if I work really hard at the beginning of the week, I can have time to pursue what I want to pursue at the end of the week. Do you, do you see how sometimes we can actually fool ourselves? The work of the Lord was not a priority. Here's a third thing, comfort. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4, I love this. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while, the house, while this house lies in ruins? Like, like, I hope you don't struggle to understand or struggle with the directness of the Lord there. Like, he just lays it on them. That's a pretty decent burn. So, so my house is in ruins and you guys are living in comfort. You're living in paneled houses. You're taking care of your stuff while my stuff is neglected. And here's the honest answer. As I study the text, 
I, I don't just think it's about physical comfort in their residence. If, if the temple was the place that you worshiped the Lord and it was the place that you gave sacrifice for your sin, I'm, I'm starting to wonder as I've studied this, are they just comfortable in their residence or are they actually comfortable in their sin? And the choice not to pursue the presence of the Lord. Here's a fourth thing. Jump down a couple verses just to the end of verse 9. Busyness. Because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. The word busies himself, it literally means are running after their own house. What are you running after today? What, what is keeping you so busy? In the cafe at the nine o'clock service, I, I, I saw a friend there I hadn't seen for a couple weeks. I'm like, hey, how you doing? I said, you still coaching? The guy's like, oh yeah, I got practices on Monday and Tuesday, and then I've got my other kid has practices on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and I'm coaching both teams, and we have tournaments on the weekend, so it's Fridays and Saturdays. We don't have a free night. Okay, listen, I'm not out on soccer, lacrosse, and kids' sports. Be careful how fast you're running. That's all I'm saying. Kristen and I were driving back from Chicago yesterday morning, and um, we're trying to coordinate our schedules for the month of May, and we've got um, four retreats that we're hosting at our house, people from out of town, small group retreats for their leaders and different things. And, and then we've got weddings. We've we got a ton going on in May. And, and Kristen goes, May is nuts. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Warning. We've got to make sure that we don't get so busy about the Lord's work that we're pursuing the work of the Lord rather than the presence of the Lord. What keeps us from seeking God's presence? Adversity, priorities, comfort, busyness. Can I give you a fifth one? Ignorance. And, and, and the text is going to address this in just a minute. But, but, but what's happening is because God is not a priority, they're finding themselves in the spin cycle. They're pursuing things that aren't satisfying. They're, they're, they're living life unexamined and ignorant and they can't figure out why they're not happy, why they're not satisfied. Whenever we fail to, to, to view God as our number one priority, that His presence, as the psalmist says, in your presence is the fullness of joy, when we miss that, there's always a cost. Here's the first one again from the text. We find ourselves unsatisfied. The cost, we are unsatisfied. Verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So one of my jobs as a preacher is to come up with illustrations to help you understand what the Lord is saying. So here's some illustrations to explain what he just said. You ever feel like you're rowing against the current? That you're sailing into the wind? that you're pedaling uphill? Okay, the illustrations that I just gave you are lame and unnecessary because God just gave you four illustrations to explain exactly what he's trying to say. The first thing that he says, you've sown much and harvested little. Okay, you're working hard, but you're not satisfied. If you are looking for your satisfaction in your job, if your identity has become your activity and, and, and your significance is tied to your performance or how much you make 
or what title is on the little name tag on your desk, you're going to end up unsatisfied. Your job, no matter how successful you are, was never meant to satisfy you. It's just a job. The thing that ultimately satisfies us is the person that we're doing the job for. Listen to what it says in Colossians 3. We read this, it says, whatever you do, work heartily. One of the things I like about that verse, whatever you do, it's not the job that is the important thing. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Listen, so many people are are evaluating, do I like my job? Do I not like my job? Am I satisfied in my job? Am I not satisfied in my job? Listen, you can make those determinations. We're not in slavery. You can choose what you do. But the problem is in choosing what you do, if you're believing that your job is going to be the thing that satisfies you, it's an illusion. It is a mirage. God says, listen, you're laboring and you're toiling, but you're not satisfied. He goes on and says, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have a fill. I think the... the, 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 the shift here is is a nuance, but it's important. Now he's not talking about what you do. He's talking about what, what you do provides you, the fruit of your labor. He's saying, you've got food, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you don't have your, your fill. The things that your work has afforded you, not only will your work not satisfy, but those things won't satisfy. More is not always better. It won't always satisfy. And then he says, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put it in them into a bag with holes. Hey, here's a question for you. Do you believe, because God loves us, that sometimes to get our attention, that he will withhold the physical from us in order to get attention of the spiritual? Do you believe that God does that? That he will withhold the physical in seasons because he wants to get a hold of our heart, our spiritual? Do you believe that God will do that? I think that's what he's telling his people. Compare and contrast what I just read to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says to his disciples, Oh, you have little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we believe that sometimes God withholds the physical in order to get attention of our hearts and the spiritual, I also believe that sometimes he provides the physical when he has our hearts and our spiritual pursuits and our desires. So the cost when we are not seeking the presence of the Lord is we are unsatisfied. Here's the second thing. Hopefully you see this in a text. God opposes us. Verse 9, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, like this next part of verse 9. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all of their labors. So, So here's what's happened. 
The, the oracle of the Lord goes out on August 29th. That's at the end of the, the harvest cycle in the nation of Israel. And, and people believe that what happened is they've just experienced a bad harvest. There's been a drought. Now, I can't prove that historically. I checked the farmer's almanac. It doesn't go back that far. But based off what God just said, what he's saying is, you've labored hard for the harvest, you've toiled, but I'm actually withholding the, the rain. I'm controlling the weather. I'm opposing you, not because I'm against you. I'm trying to get your attention because I love you, because I want to provide the thing that will satisfy. We read in James 4, New Testament, verse 3, James writes, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Well, well how do we ask wrongly? To spend it on your passions. Okay, the, the issue isn't whether God's providing or not. The, the, the root of this thing is where are our passions? And he goes on two verses later in verse 6 and says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Walt Kaiser a professor and theologian said it this way. He said, no one cheats God without cheating himself at the same time. Okay, so sometimes we fail to seek God's presence because of adversity, because we have wrong priorities, because we're seeking our own comfort. We're just too busy or we're ignorant. And the cost of that is we are unsatisfied and God will sometimes oppose to get our attention. What's the remedy? Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The first thing we need to do is consider our ways. Well, well, what does that mean? Let me, let me put it bluntly. Quit running after stupid. Quit believing that other things apart from God will satisfy. When, when we are our own kings, when we are our own priorities, when we're building our own kingdoms, I'm telling you, we find ourselves wildly unsatisfied. I love in the book of Haggai how direct God is in his communication with his people. Are, are, are you guys okay to have God communicate this directly with you? Are, are you willing to consider your ways? I think God's communicating very, very directly. It's interesting, over the past couple weeks, I've been dealing with um, two couples. One of them is from the Chicago suburbs. One of them is from... New Jersey, both trying to move to Western Michigan. Now, now, why would they want to move to Western Michigan? Because everybody wants to live in Western Michigan. And if you live in New Jersey, for sure, right? So, so two different couples. One's been staying at my house this weekend trying to... Well, what's the problem right now with moving to Western Michigan or the Tri-Cities? You know what the problem is? Where are you going to find a house? Like, it's nuts. So one couple's been staying with us the last couple days. Um, one couple has been... Uh, calling me over the phone. They're buying a house and they've bought it remotely. And um, what's going on is, as they're looking for the house, they want to make sure that the Lord's in it. And, and the guy's saying at my house, I get up for an elders meeting at 6 a.m. on Friday morning. He's already up praying. Wants God's hand in the decision. The guy on the phone, he says, me and my wife have been fasting and praying. We want to make sure that this is the right decision and the markets are moving and it's crazy and we've got to figure out where the Lord is in this. I have great confidence that the Lord's going to move. By the way, they both found houses. They're seeking the Lord. They're seeking the Lord. 
Are you considering your ways? I, I don't know how you have confidence in your decision-making process if the Lord isn't in the forefront of your decision. How do you have confidence in that? God desires our desires. And then a final thing here. You need to go. See, see, this is the crossroads. He says, consider your ways. Then he says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It's not just consider your ways, change. So, so the question is simply this. What excuse needs to stop today from getting your priorities aligned with your desire being the Lord foremost? What excuses need to stop? What sin needs to be dealt with? What has the Lord laid on your heart in this moment that you say, I know this has got to change? He's like, go get it done. Don't wait 18 years. Don't live unsatisfied. <laughs> you, you guys understand, God doesn't need the people to build the house. He can get that done on his own. He doesn't need their offerings. He's doing okay financially. He doesn't need them to go into the hills and gather the wood, he can snap his fingers and the temple is complete. Why is he calling the people to do this? Not for his sake, for their sake, that I may be glorified. That word glorified, weighty in the Hebrew. I want to be the thing that's most important. I want to be the thing that carries most weight. I want to be the foundational thing that never moves. That's what God desires that I may be glorified, that I may be weighty, and I would argue all day, it's not because he needs our praise, because we need to be praising him, because it's only in that that we'll ever be satisfied. 2,500 years ago, that's God's message to the exiles returned to Judah to rebuild the temple. It's as far as we're going today. We'll look at how they respond tomorrow. In this moment, it's insignificant. The question is, how do we respond? Do me a favor, just bow your heads for a moment. Let me just read over you David's words from Psalm 16. He says this, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He goes on and says, The sorrows of those who run after another God, they're going to multiply. But for me, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And you've made, you make known to me the path of life. Get this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Has the world lied to us so often that we've really become to believe as the people of God that our satisfaction and lasting joy can be found apart from the presence of the Lord? Have we really heard that sold so often that we've bought the lie? God's calling his people to reprioritize. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your word. 
even as I read Psalm 16. It's a familiar passage. It's a passage that I've read. It's a passage that I've known. Father, stir my heart. Stir the hearts of those in the room. May it not just be a passage that we're familiar with. May it be May it be our passion. May it be our pursuit. Father, give us the courage to believe that in you and only you can we find lasting satisfaction, lasting joy. It's in the name of your Son, your provision, that we praise you. Amen.